This podcast is brought to you by the Health Sciences Doctoral Training Centre at King's College London. Hi, you're listening to Postocalypse, a podcast by postgrad students about all things postgrad. We're a team of PhD students at King's College London trying to navigate this crazy world and we'll be sharing the highs and lows of postgraduate study. In this episode, Julie Burrell will be interviewing Olatz Mompeo Masax about her research in the genetic component of nutrition and diets. Later, we'll have a chance to talk to our panel of students about what can sometimes feel like the most significant relationship in their life, that is with their PhD supervisor. We'll chat about the nuances of the system and how it works for different research styles. So stay tuned, listeners. This is Postocalypse. Thank you for that, Stefan. I'm Julie Burrell. I'm hosting this week's episode of Postocalypse, and today we are delighted to have Olatz here to tell us all about her research. Welcome. Thank you, Julie, for having me here today. So I'm excited to talk about your research. I think my limited understanding of it is that it has something to do with what genes mean I should eat what food. <laughs> yes, you're right. Is that an accurate summary yes, yes. for the layman? Good. So do my genes tell me that I should eat Doritos and Oreos all the time? Yes, I mean... Yes, <laughs> thank you. Interview done. That's all I needed to hear. Okay, no, serious question. Can you tell us a little bit about what your research actually is? Okay. I'm looking at gene-diet interactions on disease outcome. So I'm looking at what everyone should be eating, depending on your genes and genetic susceptibility for a disease. I was interested in that because I think that we are all told that everyone should be eating the same. We have all these like crazy uh, diets that works for one person but doesn't work for another, sure. uh, allergies, etc. Yet... We have a lot of people in the UK that follow a diet, but the obesity is ex like increasing exponentially. So I believe, well, it's not that I believe, but scientists believe that everyone should be eating depending on like what is better for their genes and the susceptibility that they have for a disease. Okay, so your, would your research fall under the sort of future heading of personalized medicine? Yeah, yeah, personalized nutrition, yeah. Okay, so you're going to look at targeting a dietary recommendation or a nutritional recommendation based on a specific genetic profile that somebody has. Exactly, yes. So what kind of genes are you looking at? Are you looking at genes that have something to do with how we process nutrition? So this is very, it's very, this is very curious because there, you could see that we have uh, genes for uh, BMI. We are looking at a lot of different genes, but it's like throughout um, the whole genome. But that's because thin diet is a very complex phenotype, I would say. Therefore, we have a lot to do with uh, metabolism as well and um, behavioral, a lot of behavioral. And so you're and looking immune. at the connection between a lot of different genes yeah. and then that individual's diet. And dietary intake, yeah. Can you explain that connection a little bit more to me in terms of the decisions that someone makes about their diet and what genes may or may not influence that? How do you decide which genes to look at? Um, so first of all, we measure like if the diet is heritable or not. How do I find out whether a gene is heritable? So we first have to take, well, we are going to calculate the heritability, and we are going to do this by having monozygotic and dizygotic twins. The monozygotic twins are ident identical twins, which means that they share 100% of their DNA. We are going to look at how is their diet in these twins. And we are going to do the same with these zygotic twins, which are fraternal twins. It's like the twins that come from two different zygotes, 
but they are going to share 50% of their DNA. Um, so we are going to compare the covariance for that diet between the monozygotic and dizygotic twins. And if we see that there is a high, higher covariance uh, in the monozygotic pairs of twins, we will, we will think that that is because of the genes, because they are more similar genetically. And if it's the other way around, we are going to think that is a shared or non-shared environment. Okay, so you look at the dietary patterns of twins that are monozygotic and dizygotic, mm-hmm. and you say they are more or less similar to each other. Exactly. And so you can suss out how much of that variability is based on genetics and how much is based on non-genetic factors. Exactly. So diet mm-hmm. is, I'm not sure how you would measure that. It's not a, it's not a genetic thing that you can take a test for, right? Yeah, yeah. You have to ask someone, hey, yeah. do you eat Doritos all day? Yeah, I know. It's, it's very complicated. The thing is that, for instance, there is a, I think that we all know, like, coriander. Like, there are some people that have a, a is, are, they are genetically adverse to consume coriander because they, it tastes like soap. This is genetic. But right, yeah. For And they for, are uh, missing yeah, out because yeah, yeah. coriander is delicious. But for instance... That's um, cilantro <laughs> for my fellow countrymen out there. <laughs> so, so basically... We have found that maybe um, um, fruit and vegetables are like sixty percent heritable, and coffee consumption will be like forty percent. Those traits are highly heritable. Thus, it's very difficult for a person that is that doesn't like um, to eat fruit to eat fruit or vegetables. Maybe so. Maybe they they could benefit from other from other foods. So uh, you're measuring people's actual dietary choices, yeah. not some sort of metabolic process about no, how they're no, digesting not, their food. Probably, like, in the future I'm going to do metabolic, but not, not right now. And the thing is that sometimes you can think, oh, I really like this and I don't like that, but that's because you have not have the, the chance to eat mango or whatever. And it's very interesting in the, in the UK because we can see that there is a lot of, like, different cultures, different foods, and we have this wide range of food availability and it's, it's good so everyone mostly have tried everything. So we can trace back, like, what is better for you. Once you finish this chunk of your research, you will have figured out X, Y, Z. These genes have, are heritable and they have to do with these dietary choices. So then that allows you to make specific recommendations for these people? Is that the idea? Yeah, I would say, yeah, that would be the idea in the, in the ideal world. Because, I mean, I got a bit stuck with, uh, with diet because I'm coming, so I have an undergrad in genetics. I did my master's in developmental psychiatry, like gene-environment interaction. But I always had, like, this thing about nutrition, and I really liked it. But nutrition is just so complicated because you don't eat like their foods in isolation. You know, it's about, oh, it's, I think that was this, that thing in Mexico going on where they just banned all the sugar sweetened drinks from the schools. And it's right. like, well. Surely it, dietary choices are mostly yeah, environmental. Yeah, exactly. But the thing is that that comes, the, 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 the can of cola comes with uh, chips, comes with blah, blah, comes with watching TV, not doing nothing. You, it's it's very difficult to really like tease out what's what's the problem, and then we have these nutritional guidelines, and then we use the products in the supermarket, and they are just talking about sugar, fats, and salt. Like you don't eat that that way. So I had um, a lot of trouble like trying to really see, okay, how am I going to measure diet itself? Because there are like dietary scores, uh, indexes, etc., which which are good, but then again they are made like artificially based in, on previous knowledge 
but then the previous ones that we have is a bit biased as well. Sure. Are you looking, in terms of the flow of your research, are you looking at first the genes and then your subject's diet, or are you looking at the diet and then going back to see if there are genes that correlate with that? And then how does health factor into that? Okay, so firstly, what, what I do, I look at twins' diet and I see if there are like uh, genes related to the diet. And then I check if the diet has something to do with the, with the disease. Okay. And then I see the overlap between the diet and the disease for the genes. So you go from the diet to the genes yes. and then to the potential health links yes. of those genes via literature yeah. or databases, I assume. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Let's say you are just looking at my diet and you've, you've got a list of all the things I eat and all the choices mm-hmm. I've made. You're then looking at the 15 genes you've decided to examine in my DNA and then you're looking for patterns between a certain set of genes and a certain set of dietary choices. Is that the basic gist? Yes. And so then once you have the list of genes that, that I have that mm-hmm. you think are linked to my dietary choices, yes. you then look for a disease that may or may not correlate with that I gene? W- I would look for a, a disease that you might have genetics predisposition to and then see if those genes overlap with the genes with the diet. This so have you right found a lot of interesting variations that you are looking for that, that tell you things about people's dietary choices? Well, I'm using a dietary choice, and this is like not, not, not published data, but basically what I found out is that um, there are diets, one of the diets that is um, mostly based on fi- fiber, I find some genetic variants in coffee consumption. So maybe in the UK, we could look that maybe those people that drink coffee might tend to have better dietary choices. I love that because I drink oh, yeah. a lot of coffee. Yeah, yeah me too. And my like, sister yeah. hates coffee, and I know that means I'm genetically superior. Yeah. I feel like that's what you're <laughs> telling me right now. Yeah. So the thing is that it's very interesting because maybe this, uh, this genetic variance has to do with um, coffee metabolism, and then that metabolism has, has to do with other type of metabolism while, while you eat. So maybe that means like you metabolize slower, so maybe you eat less, and then you have better food choices. Like there is... A bit like my supervisor doesn't doesn't want me to go down down that road, but I love that. I'm like I want to know why, you know. Yeah, I mean you but, get, you end up wandering down all kinds of rabbit yeah. holes over the course of PhD research. Yeah, no, the thing is that then once I know, uh, once I will know which genes are specific for like one type of diet, I will see which genes overlap with um, with a disease. So, for instance, if you have a high a very high genetic susceptibility for um, I don't know, stroke, okay. and then this overlaps with some of the diet that you might be predisposed to, you can be like, okay, you have a predisposition for this, and this food is bad for you, so just don't do that. But then the other day I was thinking, oh man, imagine that for stroke is one thing, for schizophrenia is another, for, you know. Okay, so this is getting really specific. You're not, this this is going beyond the sort of don't eat things that are full of fat and sugar and carbs because it clogs your arteries and that's bad for your cardiovascular health. Like, we all know that. That seems like general advice. Is it true that that's generally applicable to everyone or is that going to vary based on something that you've discovered in our genes? Mm, Everyone should be more mindful about what, what they like. It feels better for them. Of course, it's important to follow the nutrition recommendations that, that we have. But for instance, me, what happens? Like, I don't like fruit. I don't. I mean, I do like fruit. I just realized that I don't. I don't eat fruit, but I really like vegetables. 
And maybe it's because I just process the fiber from the vegetables very well. But you can get to the bottom of this. You're here. You're on the scene. You're doing the research. (laughs) You're going to find out about your secret vegetable genes. (laughs) No, I just, like, personalized nutrition is a very new field. Like, now there's a lot of research going on. And ever-changing. But, yeah, it's it's, it's good. I I like it. But sometimes it's just, like, very tough because you want to back up some evidence and it's just not there yet right okay well you've got time right you're in your second year yeah but well (laughs) so you've got a little more time to get to the bottom of all of this yeah hopefully do you think you want to stay in academia and continue on this nutritional research path uh i don't know like i like academia i'm having i'm having fun as as you know i'm i heard in the previous episode um yeah we are you are paid for like um to think and I, I love that, but sometimes I just want to like punch the screen, you know. Sure. Just, like program, I'm doing a lot of bioinformatics, and it's just too much tears and blood sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sure. sounds like a real heartbreaker yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so tell me a little bit about what you actually do for your research on a day-to-day basis. Are you in the lab? Are you looking at data? Are you going into the clinic to hang out with these twins and take samples? Like, how does this work? Are you feeding people Doritos all the time and seeing what happens? So my morning routine is no, I don't have morning routine. Sorry, I don't. I don't have morning routine because I do intermittent fasting, so it's it's fine. Intermittent fasting is that I don't eat for sixteen hours, and then I break. This is something you do in your personal life based on your important scientific research, and we all should be doing it. No, it works for me. Everyone is different genetically. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Way to, way to tie that back in. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it works for me because otherwise I get distracted. Like, what to eat, not to eat. Walk you get to the distracted office. by food? I do. I do get distracted by food. Amen, girl. Uh, so, basically, I go to the office and I'm completely dry lab. Uh, so, I work with uh, R, Python, um, Bash, Script, uh, everything like that. And I do a lot of coding and programming um, to figure out this diet thingy and genetics. And then uh, once a week, I go to the clinical research facility in St. Thomas Hospital, and we work with uh, twins, identical twins and non-identical twins. And it's fun. You can see that uh, sometimes it happens that identical twins get very competitive against the non-identical twins, like, oh, you're not that special or (laughs) stuff like that. Yeah, we collect samples, like stool samples, because we do things with gut bacteria as well. Okay. And so we get the data from them, like food frequency questionnaires. So you're you're processing written sort of... Yeah. Yeah, qualitative data that you then input yeah. and process with all of your yeah. fancy coding statistical yeah. software that you use to look at big data about yeah. your genetics. I don't know. The, the problem is that you, you can see that there are some twins that, or like not twins, but I, I guess that everyone that, that does diet um, studies, they see that maybe some person, some people started to fill the questionnaires and then they get bored. And they just throw it away. So then, when I look at are that, these adult twins or child adult, twins? Adult, 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 these are adults. Yeah, yeah but yeah, but, but they're, they, they can't, they can't finish the, yeah. the questionnaire. Yeah, but the problem is that then afterwards, um, how do you measure that? Is it is that actually what they are eating, or is it because they didn't fill the questionnaire? So you always have to play with this stuff because you do not control the data. Like yeah. it's not like wet lab that you of course i'm not saying that wet lab people like control their data but they know exactly exactly what they have right and then they work with them 
I don't know sometimes where my data comes from and I have to figure out like what's wrong, what I have to do with it. Yeah, people are tricky. Yeah, people are tricky. <laughs> yeah, everyone is, yeah. Fair so, enough. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Alex. I appreciate you sharing your research with us today. Is there um, any parting thoughts you want to leave us with about what I should and should not be eating? Just eat whatever you feel you feel better with oh my god yes uh, yeah. you are gonna be my doctor as yeah. soon as I, as soon as you get no. your, your phd <laughs> i'm signing up that sounds like the best medical advice I've yeah ever heard. no it's just uh, i think that we are bombarded by like so much food industry it's just so big yeah well and it's all driven by marketing right yeah so there's a lot of exactly. factors going into those decisions that have very little to do with exactly. you and your body and your yeah. genetics certainly exactly so something like if you should, if you ate everything that you are recommended to eat, everyone would be obese, to be honest, like, no. And this thing about, oh yeah, you snack, so, so your, your metabolism keeps going. Your metabolism is not going to shut down if you don't eat. Eat when you are hungry, like, that's, that's my advice. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's yeah, a lot sorry. of confusing <laughs> dietary advice out there, but yeah. uh, thank you for helping to unravel just a small part of it. <laughs> thank you. Okay, great. So after that fascinating interview about diet, and I'm going to go out and eat whatever the heck I want, now we're going to move on and have a brief panel discussion about a hot-button issue that affects all PhD students. And today that's going to be exploring the dynamic of the supervisor relationship. This can be high, low, something in between, the good, the bad, the ugly. Everybody has a supervisor, and everybody relates to them a little differently. So Joining me in the studio now, along with Olets, are some of our other PhD students on the Postocalypse crew. Welcome to all of our panelists, and I'm going to have them each introduce themselves and tell you where they do their research. So let's start over here. Hi, I'm Stefan. Uh, I study air quality, and I'm based in the Environmental Research Group. Hi, I'm Elisa, and I'm based over at the IOPPN. Hi, I'm Ale, and I'm in Perinatal Imaging and Health in St. Thomas's. Great. Thank you guys all for being here today. We are talking about supervisors. I want to be clear, this is not a session for us to sit around and complain, which I know is one of PhD students' favorite things to do. I wanted us to have a little conversation about what the student-supervisor dynamic and relationship is and how we sort of see it and how our supervisors see it and talk about some of the experiences we've had. Why don't we start over here with our health friends and uh, have them share with us how they sort of found their supervisors? Why did you end up with this person? Is it because of their research? Is it because you'd met them before? You looked them up? They found you? Talk us through that process. Okay, so maybe I can start. So I um, applied for a PhD position um, the, on the Medical Research Council doctoral training program. So the way that works is the MRC give a big pot of money to the university and then potential supervisors apply for PhD students with a project proposal and then the PhD student applies to the program in general and then they get to pick from a catalogue from all the different projects and so I didn't um, I had an idea about what I wanted to do and actually the supervisors I ended up with were people I had known about and um, my previous supervisor had worked with them so I kind of was familiar with them um, but I think that the way I got onto my PhD program is is perhaps more telling about the changing dynamic of the supervisor. Um, once upon a time, you know, supervisors and their PhD students were seen as some kind of patronage, some kind of family, and you had these visions of people gathering in the college dorms and, and meeting with their supervisors over tea and stuff like this. And I think it's changed quite a lot 
Um, that's at least how I envisioned it, and that is certainly not the case. Even though I do go <laughs> for lunch occasionally with my supervisor, and I he feel does like, like you coffee. envisioned like an apothecary apprenticeship. I think or I something. envisioned Harry Potter, <laughs> but I mean, with good reason. I do think that that is how it used to be. Yeah, it's interesting because I I applied for the same kind of program that you're talking about, and it's very different because you're applying for the project rather than for the person. Um, so a lot of people are applying to these projects without necessarily having met the person that they're going to end up working with, which of course means that you don't know whether you fit. As yeah, a it's kind of an unknown. Yeah. And does that, but that does that ultimately mean you end up with a project you know you're really interested in, and it's already sort of shaped? Does that limit the amount you get to shape it yourself, or does it still sort of? change in consultation with your supervisor? I think pros and cons. I mean, I think the rule goes that whatever is on your project proposal, you can just forget it because in the first <laughs> yep, month agreed. of your PhD, you're going to change it anyway. Yeah. But if, I mean, the, the kind of, the bare bones of that project don't really change. Like, for instance, you know, the, the kinds of participants that you'll be looking at or the particular, you know, in my case, kind of cognitive function, you know, wouldn't change. But maybe the design of the experiments will change yeah like on the on the whole like pros and cons conversation like i think one of the good things about it is that you've applied for this project and you're funded by this kind of yeah, body like the MRC. Yeah. And you have the security because i know people who have you know ended up changing their supervisors staying on the same project but working with different people or added um supervisors to their supervisory team if they didn't have enough kind of expertise in a certain area so i think it gives you a bit more power as a phd student than i guess you used to have in the in the, in, the old, in the olden times, yes. So if changes are to occur to your PhD, do you guys find that those changes occur in consultation with your supervisor? Is it because you've discovered something and you think things need to change? Or does your supervisor kind of say, hey, look what's out there, I found this thing, I think you should go in this direction? Um, so I, I had an experience where uh, the ad PhD was advertised to include air filtration as well as low-cost sensors. Uh, and then I decided I didn't want to do filtration, and they were like, "All right, who okay, wants fine. to do filtration?" Yeah. There's nobody. <laughs> and and basically, I, I was in. They I was said in okay. Yeah, yeah. They were like, "Yeah, that's fine." That was it. Nice. Yeah. I that's should say good. that I had perhaps the opposite experience where I uh, I didn't like the design of my experiment. I thought it was a bit clunky. So I'm in psychology, and you know, I want things to be nice and clear with simple contrasts and things like that. That's a good design for me. And I was landed with this Frankenstein of an experiment. And I tried to remove things. <laughs> I tried to make it a bit more elegant, but my supervisor had the final say. Even though technically I had the final say, but he also had the final Realistically, say. Realistically, maybe not so much. Yeah. <laughs> How confident do we feel that we actually have control over our PhDs? Because a lot of the time I'm told that the PhD is yours to do what you want, but that doesn't always come across sometimes. Don't you guys think? I feel that way very much. You feel I'm, you have control? Yeah, very much so. If, I mean, for better or for yeah. worse. I, mean, I, you know, you, I just sort of felt like I showed up and was told, enjoy your PhD. And so, you know, I do feel like that it is sort of my construct. And I it's get very to make different, isn't on. it, from, from that, the experience of being a research assistant where you're just kind of a helping hand on someone else's work. Yes. Whereas when you're a PhD student, I don't know about you guys, but you feel a bit more in control. I think definitely my one of my research lab experiences before I got here was as technician in a research lab where yeah. everybody else was a PhD student and so I and this was in America where the structure is a little different but I thought I knew what being in a PhD lab was going to be like and then when I got here it was utterly different from when I was a technician in a PhD lab and it was just totally unstructured 
Um, but it was it's a learning experience. Some people would say that's a critical part of the mm. PhD experience is sort of being feeling like you got thrown into the deep end and learning how to swim. And I would even add to that that, you know, even if you don't feel like you have full free reign over your project, I suppose the point is is that you are also learning how to collaborate. You know, so maybe your supervisor isn't the be all and the end all, but you know his opinion matters, uh-huh. and, or her opinion. I'm just speaking for myself, but um, <laughs> you know, so you have to work. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to have a the tug of war in a way, and you kind of have to learn to compromise or adjust your thinking, or you know, I think that's part of it. Definitely, mm-hmm. the, the uh, staying yeah. focused is one thing that I've struggled with because mm-hmm. there's lots of avenues you can go down. And then you feel like you're not, you don't have the freedom, but actually your supervisor's there to make sure you don't get lost mm. at the same time. I, I feel like I could easily get lost. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's that nice. is a risk. <laughs> your supervisor is a, a lighthouse yes. in the dark. I will, I will tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> Write it in a card. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys ever find that the first and second supervisor system is in conflict with each other? Like maybe you and your supervisor... Maybe he's being a great lighthouse, but then the second one comes in and there's a foghorn and says, no, do it this way. But what happens when the light breaks? Yeah, well, you need to have a backup lighthouse yeah. keeper. That's why they always yeah. work in pairs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do they? I don't know. That was a made-up historical fun you fact for you all. <laughs> what do you guys think? Um, I don't know. The thing is that uh, my first supervisor, uh, we have a very good relationship. The second one is abroad. However, I find I found a postdoc, which she just became my mentor. Mm-hmm. Like, and I just, I just, I just feel that with her I can have like a true connection. If I have a doubt, I can go, etc. Whereas with my supervisor, sometimes I may feel ashamed if, mm-hmm. you know, I'll be confused if I don't you really feel embarrassed. Yeah, yeah, stupid <laughs> yeah. questions, stupid questions, whatever. Yeah, I think that. It's important to have like good relationships outside the supervisors, and then the head of the department, like he would be like my advisor, you know. And but I think, f- at least for me, like uh, my supervisor, um, he hadn't had too many more PhD students before. Uh, myself and another PhD student joined at the same time, and we're doing slightly different things. And the hard thing is, is that there is no postdoc who can uh, be my lighthouse. <laughs> Uh, we, you know, and it, it's. I found it to be actually, especially in my first year, I, I found it to be really lonely. Um, you know, mm. you know, really kind of drowning in in all these kind of s- silly questions that I had that I just wish somebody could answer and, and save me a lot of time. I really think like I could have saved a year if I just asked, had somebody to ask, because mm-hmm. I, I think I really could have asked my supervisor. Um, but not yeah. in the same way. <laughs> I think Alat is making a really good point about kind of seniority because I like I don't know about you guys, but I feel a lot more confident going to like a postdoc in my department to ask things that I consider you know silly, as you said, rather than to go to my supervisors, which are both professors and heads of departments. And sometimes you feel like you don't want to bother them with things mm-hmm. that are a bit trivial. Sure. But is this a? Yeah. I'm realizing three girls talking about asking silly questions. I mean, Stefan, do you, as a guy, I mean, do you also feel afraid to ask silly questions to your supervisor? No, not really. Ooh, yeah. Well, there yeah. you go. <laughs> um, I, I came from a different. So I feel like I came from an advantage of um, that the technical questions I kind of already knew. Mm-hmm. So the the skills that I was learning weren't didn't really have to change that much mm. from work that I've done previously. But yeah, I, 
I've asked loads of stupid questions. I Not that my questions aren't stupid. <laughs> I, 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 I I'm sure them. you ask lots of stupid <laughs> questions. <laughs> Stefan, so how does your supervisor react? To those stupid questions? Yeah. Um, he looks at me quietly. <laughs> <laughs> Endearingly <laughs> or <laughs> silently yeah. with disappointment? <laughs> no, no, they've all been, they've been pretty good. Um, Do you guys feel like your supervisors, other than guiding your project do they provide you with other forms of mentorship or leadership or networking or conferences or or guidance so my uh supervisor once struck up a conversation about what i wanted to do after my phd and he's a clinician um, and he was like oh have you ever thought about doing clinical psychology and in like absolutely not i mean i mean it's a is a very honorable profession but it's just not for me so that was a short conversation well it was but then i i did spend the rest of the week thinking has he seen something in me that i didn't know was there is he saying this because he see, thinks i have potential you know i really ruminated on it for quite a while wondering if i should do it and then i started asking other people who had decided to go but, down that route i really <laughs> it mattered that, to me like, got in your head well, girl. No, it, it, i mean this is an interesting thing i had i'd been speaking to a friend about this exact point and I last year I was kind of struggling a little bit and so I, I took myself to the King's Counselling Service because I was kind of feeling a little bit lonely as I mentioned and just generally a little bit all over the place in terms of my PhD and one really interesting point that she made to me was you know we spend a lot of time you know in anticipation of getting the PhD and they always tell you it's going to be difficult and you think okay it's going to be intellectually or mentally or even physically difficult but Nobody ever really talks about the emotional dynamic between you and your supervisor. And she was talking a lot about how, um, you know, that the dynamic between the two of you can sometimes mimic other kind of power dynamics in your life, whether it's with your parents or with your partner or with teachers that you grew up with. And, and, you know, I found that really, really interesting observation that so much so maybe it tells you something about me that I spent the rest of the week ruminating about this one throwaway comment my supervisor made to me. You know, you're never going to find a perfect supervisor. Some people have great supervisors, but they're never perfect. And I think it's interesting to reflect on, on what that dynamic says about you I think like the fact that we're moving more towards kind of having supervisory teams like one like rather than just having one supervisor having two or three or even four like I know people who have four in my department because then you can kind of get a mix and match of what you need from each one of them rather than having these huge expectations that this one person is going to be your mentor and your technical advisor and your like everything pretty much for four years mm. that's, that's true do you guys have committee meetings you have a committee with external experts who are not your supervisors that no. review mm-hmm. your progress but it's a, it's I mean, we had that with the upgrade so yeah. in, when it. you're doing a PhD uh, after your first year of your PhD usually at least it's protocol in King's is you do something called an upgrade which basically determines whether you continue on to complete your PhD or you can get something called an MPhil which is like a truncated PhD Right. and during that you would have external experts who would kind of not necessarily pick apart your, your proposal but they would definitely question you on it and they'd give you good feedback. I remember mine was a good source of feedback. So do you think that might vary between different departments? Oh yeah probably because um, at mine I have quite regular meetings which is annoying because trying to get six or seven academics in a room an agreed date at any specific time is incredibly difficult mm. um, but six yeah. or seven in your committee 
Well, you have your two supervisors, and then you have two committee experts, and then you have a chair of your committee. And oh. then I've also got my industry supervisors as Sounds well. Sounds so official. Yeah. Yeah. So if your supervisors don't have a specific type of expertise that you think might be necessary, it's kind of, I think, it's kind of their job to put people who have that expertise on your committee, right? Because yeah. your committee's decided it went early on before mm-hmm. you're, you've been here for three months, so you don't know anybody, but your supervisors should, and they should sort of pick people who might have relevant skills to mm-hmm. be on your external committee. I guess it's just for you to highlight concerns as well early on, to kind of say, actually, this isn't working for me, and then they yeah. can hopefully put stuff into. Yeah, it's good to keep you on track. Mm. So we have progress reports, which maybe are like a slightly less intense version of your massive meetings. Yeah, we have to do those too. They're online forms on student records. You guys are going to be experts in bureaucracy. (laughs) Yeah, I guess because you have the meetings, the progress reports feel like like a rubber stamp nothing. Well, mine feel like a rubber stamp nothing anyway. So do you guys, is it what you expected supervision-wise? Did When you envisioned having a PhD supervisor, when you grew up and got your PhD, is this what you thought it would be like? Mm, not not me, because for instance, I, I consider my supervisor, the, I think that he's very hands-on. However, maybe, so I'm his first PhD student ever. So I think I was expecting more like, of a, like more guidance, more like go to these courses, this is going to be good for you. And I'm lost in skills forge, you know, and online stuff and conferences. I'm just there. Uh, but then on the other hand, I'm very free to do what I want. So, yeah, I think it's like to find the balance. Yeah, yeah I think it's also important to kind of find someone who works for you um, and kind of fits your own personal learning style. Because um, I know I know people whose supervisors need them to be in nine to five Monday to Friday, uh, just because that's the way they work. But then, whereas my first supervisor pretty much said that you know as long as my work is being done, he doesn't really care where I am as long as I'm okay and my work is being done. And I guess that can work for certain people, but not for everyone. So yeah. But I think that's that's difficult, you know, to know before you actually get into the PhD until you're actually in the department working at your desk meeting with your supervisor yeah I mean at least for me I had when I applied for the doctoral training program um, at most I had a 30 minute conversation over Skype with my now supervisor yeah, and even though we had a great chat and I did get a good feeling you know you should always trust your gut um, and first impressions do matter uh, you know that's not going to reveal everything to you so it, it's hard to know how to gauge that Yeah, well, it's a learning process. I think that many things... You will learn so much about your topic, obviously, during your PhD, but you mostly will learn so much about yourself. I I know that sounds a little squishy and touchy-feely, but like... It's okay, I love it. You you really do. You learn a lot about how you learn and how you work and how you structure a project when you are sort of left to do it on your own. So I think that's part of the PhD process. But in terms of what, what you just said, Julie, with like the fact that you just meet them for, you know, half an hour or whatever, and then you make your decision... I know people who have actually contacted um, other lab members, so other like PhD students or other research assistants, and asked for advice on how you know that person actually is a supervisor, because that is information that you would necessarily get mm. from just you know meeting them for thirty minutes, and maybe that's something that's, that's good worth. Advice. Yeah, I honestly think that sounds very sensible. All right, so we're sort of closing in on this. Any other issues about supervision and PhD stuff that people think we should cover? I think because of the dynamic of the power relationship, they're quite scared to bring up issues. Mm. So I, I had an issue with the feedback I was getting, 
I just sat him down and said, I'm, I'm not happy. And he went, OK, I'll change. And it, and it was as simple as that as dealing with a problem, but I think some people oh, wow. can... That sounds so yeah, simple. That yeah. sounds too really good to be true. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it just sounds like an intimidating prospect for yeah, you yeah. to sit down Maybe. and be like, supervisor, um, person of authority, yeah, I have yeah. an issue with the way yeah. you are doing something. Yeah. But um, sometimes they need to hear that. And as long as it's said respectfully, I don't think it should be a problem. Yeah. And I, I think I want to echo something that uh, Olatz made a point about earlier, uh, about finding your postdoc friend that you mm-hmm. can look up to. I think also, you know, people also underestimate how much initiative you should take in your PhD. After mm. all, even if you don't feel like you have complete control over your research, you know, you have lots of other things you can do during that time. And, you know, for instance, for myself, neither of my PhD supervisors are experts in the type of neuroimaging method that I use. And... I got to a year, a year and a half into my PhD, really kind of expecting them to tell me what to do, but they really, they didn't know. And it, it took me kind of hitting rock bottom on that topic to kind of actually take initiative. And I started my own neuroimaging working group at my institute. And now we're like 50 people strong and we've got funding. And, you know, I was, I was surprised at myself how just sending an email out to like-minded other researchers would blossom into something so much more helpful not just to myself but to other PhD students master's students and other researchers but using probably students thinking the same as you yeah just I think take initiative just yeah, go for great. it yeah. really go for it yeah your PhD is really what you make of it write that in a card yeah, yeah. I'm gonna embroider that <laughs> okay so that winds us down towards the end of our podcast but we're gonna do a quick little section here that we have just invented this very week well, not invented. It's called Listener Mail. It's a section that exists on lots of shows. <laughs> Basically, we just got a really lovely email from one of our listeners, and I just wanted to share it with all of you so that you too can feel warm and fuzzy inside like we do. This is from Sophie, and it says, Hello, Postocalypse team. I just wanted to say that I'm really enjoying the podcast. I listen to a lot of different podcasts, and it's great to have one so, quote, close to home, unquote. I know it must be a lot of extra work on top of your already busy lives, but I hope you keep it up. Thanks, Sophie. Sophie, thank you. We appreciate that email. That made us all warm and fuzzy. (laughs) So that actually brings us to the end of this month's edition of Postdocalypse. Thank you very much to all of our guests and panelists, to Olantz and Elisa and Ale and Stefan. And I'm your host this week, Julie. And thank you to all of our listeners for dialing in and listening to our podcast. We appreciate you tremendously. And if you want to write us an email like Sophie, you are very welcome to do that. You can tweet at us at postdocalypse18, or you can email us at postdocalypsepod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you if you have thoughts on topics we should cover, PhD subjects that hit close to home for you that you want to hear us expound on. So let us know what your thoughts are. Meanwhile, until next time, keep it real, podcasters. <laughs>